Let me invite you now to open your Bibles once again to the Acts of the Apostles, and this morning to the 13th chapter. We've been making our way for some weeks now through this fascinating record of the life of the church and the spread of the gospel in those early days of Christianity, and we pick back up this morning now in Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. Father, as we turn again to your word, we turn again to you and ask that you would be our teacher this morning, that the Holy Spirit would come and illumine our hearts and minds and ears and eyes to what you say from your word. Speak to us. Give us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we step back into the book of Acts this morning, we are going to find ourselves in the middle of a prayer meeting taking place in the church in the city of Antioch in ancient Syria. The city of Antioch is a significant distance to the north of Jerusalem, and though it today is part of the nation of Turkey, Antioch lies very nearby the modern-day scenes of unrest that you've been seeing or reading about in the daily news in Syria. But in those days, in the book of Acts, there was a great stirring of a different kind taking place in and around the land of Syria, including the planting of this marvelous church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was founded, as we saw back in chapter 11, and as we said then, this new church in Syria was in many ways a pace-setting kind of church. They were a church that would lay down many patterns that future churches down to this day would seek to follow and to emulate. We talked about this, Kendall easily in his book, The Illustrated Guide to Biblical History, mentions four specific ways in which the church at Antioch was on the cutting edge, so to speak. Let me summarize them again for you this morning. First, they were among the first multi-ethnic churches, with Jews and Gentiles equally welcomed in and participating in the family of God. Second, Chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Third, the Antioch Christians were pioneers in terms of benevolence ministry, as we see in chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. They collected a famine relief offering for their brothers and sisters in the churches of Judea to the south. And then fourth, they set the pace, as we'll see in chapter 13 this morning, in terms of their commitment to missions, the way they commissioned some of their own number as foreign missionaries. And it's perhaps for this fourth characteristic, their missionary sending, that the church in Antioch is best remembered today. And I want us to read about that now here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salome, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, Will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord." Now, it seems to me that Easley is right, that the church in Antioch was indeed a pace setter, a paradigm maker, and I think especially so in terms of their commitment here in Acts 13 to the cause of missions, to the cause of getting the good news of Jesus out to people and places that were still in need of a preacher. That's what missions is at root level, isn't it? It's that Romans 10 passion to send preachers to those who have not yet fully heard the message of Christ or who have little opportunity of hearing, to places that are as yet few and far between when it comes to gospel churches, places where the gospel is not fully proclaimed. And this is what Jesus commissioned his followers to do, isn't it? All the way back in chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Missions. And that blueprint has been unfolding, as we've seen in this book of Acts, just as Jesus drew it up there in chapter 1. The gospel spreading, first of all, in Jerusalem, and then spilling over marvelously into Judea and Samaria. And now, in these recent portions of the book, the gospel is beginning to make its way even to the remotest part of the earth. So in one sense, the church at Antioch, here in Acts 13, isn't doing anything extraordinary. They're only doing what Jesus has already said that his people should do, right? They're simply fitting themselves into his blueprint. And yet the way that the church at Antioch does so is worth our noticing. The way in which they select and send and pray for missionaries, as well as the way that their missionaries actually go out and do the work, set for us a healthy pattern for how churches will want to do the work of missions even in our own day. The church at Antioch and their missionaries, I think, give us a very healthy paradigm for how we ourselves will want to send and pray for and do missions today. And along these lines, I just want to give you several bullet points this morning, several lessons we can learn from the missionary pattern that is laid down here by the Lord through his work in the church in Antioch, as we find them here in Acts 13. And the first of those lessons is simply this. Missions 
is born of the Holy Spirit. The work of missions is given birth by the Holy Spirit. Did you notice this in verse 2? While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, these folks in Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. The Holy Spirit said that, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And then the church does so in verse 3, sending them on their way with prayer and fasting. And then we read, Again, in verse 4, that these two men, men, having been sent away by the church, were also, verse 4, sent out by the Holy Spirit. He was the ultimate caller of these missionaries and the ultimate sender of these missionaries. So the first missionary paradigm that we learn from the church at Antioch isn't actually so much learned from the church at Antioch itself, but from the Holy Spirit's working in their midst. In other words, it isn't ultimately the church by herself that calls Barnabas and Saul. It isn't ultimately the church by herself that sends Barnabas and Saul. And it won't be, incidentally, the church by herself that will finally uphold Barnabas and Saul either once they're on the field. It is the Holy Spirit who calls and sends and upholds through the church. And that's a good lesson for us to learn this morning because we may look at this passage and we may listen to this sermon and think that, well, you know, we're not all that much like the church at Antioch here. I mean, after all, they had all these prophets and teachers in their midst, including such great men as Barnabas and Saul. And we just finished hearing that they were pace setters among the early Christian churches. They were ahead of the curve, it seems. They were on the cutting edge. And we don't seem to be on the cutting edge. We just seem to be a typical small Baptist church here in the middle of the country that's not very cutting edge at all. And so it may seem to us that we would be hard-pressed to write after Antioch's copy to imitate their missionary example. But let me just remind you that it wasn't the church at Antioch, first of all, that concocted the idea of sending out these foreign missionaries. Nor is it the church in Antioch by herself who sends them away. No, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. And they were ultimately sent out by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does both the calling and the sending through the instrumentality of the local church, yes. But it is the Holy Spirit who ultimately does it. It is the Holy Spirit who has the ideas. It's the Holy Spirit who makes it work. And that means two things for us as we move through the rest of this sermon, admiring and hopefully learning from the missionary pattern that is set forth by the Antioch church and her missionaries. The first thing is that while we admire and seek to emulate the church at Antioch, We give the praise to God. He, by his Holy Spirit, is the prime mover in this passage. It's an amazing church, but it's an amazing church because they possessed the Holy Spirit. And then the second application is that we not convince ourselves as we listen this morning that, well, we could never be in Antioch because we have the same Holy Spirit living and working among us, do we not? As did the church there. And if he is the prime mover in Antioch or in Pleasant Ridge, there's no telling what impact our little church could have for Jesus, even to the remotest part of the earth. 
You see, missionary passion and missionary calling and missionary sending and missionary support and missionary success are all God things, aren't they? And we must keep that in mind this morning as we work our way through this passage. We will learn in most of these bullet points today from the example and the wisdom and the faithfulness of the Antioch church and her missionaries. But we will remember that what they were, they were by the power of the same Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so we give him the praise and we believe that he can work in us just as fruitfully as he worked in Antioch. So that's the first thing to notice from this passage. Missions is born of the Holy Spirit. But then in the second place, let us also say that missions is born in prayer and fasting. Verse 2, again, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Now in this context, the phrase ministering to the Lord, I think probably refers to prayer. And therefore, it appears to have been during a time of prayer and fasting that Barnabas and Saul were called to the missionary task. And that's important for us to see. It was while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting that the Holy Spirit made his missionary purposes known to the church. And then not only are Barnabas and Saul apparently called to the work of missions in a prayer meeting, but they are also, verse 3, sent out to the mission field In the same fashion, then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. When they had fasted and prayed, they sent them away. So now, just pausing for a second, here in these first two points, we come across those two train tracks that so often run side by side in the pages of Holy Scripture. Namely, God's sovereignty, point one, and now man's responsibility, point two. God, the Holy Spirit, we said just a moment ago, is clearly sovereign in Acts 13, is he not? It is he who calls Barnabas and Saul to the work of missions in verse 2. It is he who ultimately sends them out in verse 4. And yet the very way in which he calls them by instructing the church to set them apart shows that he does not intend to do this missionary calling and sending alone. And now the fact that he moves both to call and to send his missionaries out while the church is fasting and praying is further evidence that human beings have a key role to play in this thing called missions. And one of the great roles we have to play, as this passage exemplifies for us, is that of prayer and fasting. Because we find the believers at Antioch having two separate prayer meetings in these early verses of Acts 13. Now, as for the first prayer meeting, we're not sure exactly why they called it. It's possible that they were already thinking in terms of missions and missionaries and wondering if they should send someone out or who they should send out. And therefore, they were holding a special season of prayer and fasting in order to discern the Lord's will about these very things. It's also possible that the Holy Spirit simply spoke to them in verse 2 about Barnabas and Saul during the course of their regular prayer meeting. We're not told for sure by Luke, the author of this book of Acts. All he says is that the believers are there ministering to the Lord and fasting together, and that's when the Holy Spirit decides to speak. And from that fact, I simply draw the reminder of how important it is 
for God's people to join together in gathered prayer. The great missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul, the greatest mission trips that were ever undertaken, appear to have been given birth in a prayer meeting. Doesn't that say something about the importance of gathering together for prayer? What might the Spirit speak to and do among us if we were all gathered faithfully to engage in ministering to the Lord together in gathered prayer? Come and join us Sundays at 9 a.m. and let's see what the Holy Spirit may speak to us and what He may call some of us to do. But then notice, as we said, that not only did the Holy Spirit evidently call Barnabas and Saul at a prayer meeting, but then the church at Antioch also sent them on their way to the field by means of a prayer meeting as well. When they had fasted and prayed, verse 3, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And what a mandate that is for us to do the same, to fast and pray for our missionaries. And not only when God gives us opportunities to send them out, but also to continually pray for those missionaries who have already been sent. David and Tiffany in Central Asia. Aaron and Tiffany in the Amazon basin of Brazil. Nathan and Kristen who arrived safely in China this past week. The various men involved in the work in Ethiopia and so on. Each Sunday, one of those four couples that I mentioned specifically or teams in the case of Ethiopia, each Sunday, one of them appears on the back of your bulletin. Pray for them. When there is a peculiarly special season of need, fast for them. Do not forget them. Because missions is not only born in prayer and fasting, but it is sustained when God's people pray and fast as well. So missions is born of the Holy Spirit but it is also born through the instrumentality of human prayer and fasting. And then the third lesson to draw from this passage is that missions is based in the local church. Missions is based in the local church. And here I just want you to notice that Barnabas and Saul did not go it alone. In other words, they didn't appoint themselves as missionaries. No, what does the text say? Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, verse 2. And it was while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting that the Holy Spirit spoke his plans for the mission work. Now the word they in verse 2 may refer back in verse 1 to the prophets and teachers, or it may refer more broadly to the church that was there. I think it probably refers to the church at large that was praying together in verse 2. But in either case, the idea is that Barnabas and Saul are being set aside and sent out to gospel work by the body of Christ, either by its leaders or more likely by the church as a whole. And we see the same thing with the way the church sends them away in verse 3. When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So Barnabas and Saul don't rely merely on an internal sense that God has called them to be gospel ministers and missionaries, though I don't doubt that they had that internal sense. But in addition to that, they have this external approval and commissioning from their local church before they set out into ministry. And that, it seems to me, is a healthy pattern. That's why churches today ordain men. 
We get the process of ordaining men, laying on hands and praying for them and specifically commissioning them to gospel work from passages like this one in Acts 13. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to an individual about gospel ministry, whether it's at home or abroad, we should also trust that he will speak to that individual's local church about it as well. And if God speaks to the church about such things, if God calls one of her own to set out on foreign missions, well, then the church had better uphold her end of the bargain as well, right? If missions is based in the local church, that has a lot to say to all of us, whether we are the missionaries or not. It's not up to the prospective missionary to lean upon the wisdom and commissioning of the church only, but it is up to the local church to be as diligent as possible to do their part. Just like this church in Antioch. The local church in the New Testament example plays a hands-on role, literally in this passage, a hands-on role in the missionary enterprise. And it ought to be the same today. We ought, as a local church, to have our hands and our prayers all in the mix of missions, particularly for those people that we support. Mission boards and denominations can be very helpful, especially in terms of gathering funding or coordinating on-field logistics or providing specific missionary kind of training, things that may be difficult for a local church to fully provide. But it really ought to be the local church not the mission board, not the denomination that takes responsibility for thoroughly examining a potential missionary spiritual fitness. It ought to be the local church that holds the rope in terms of moral support. It ought to be the local church that provides accountability and prayer and so on to their missionaries. And though many churches cannot provide it in full, it seems to me that financial support ought to be a big piece of the local church's puzzle as well. It's all too easy sometimes to just slough these kinds of things off to the mission board. But if God should ever grant us the blessing of sending one of our own to the mission field, we must be hands-on. We must fulfill our duty. We must hold the rope, to use William Carey's famous phrase. In fact, some of you may have gotten a little packet in the mail in the last few days from Nathan and Kristen before they left the country. And inside that packet, there were some little strands of rope, and there was a little card with a recollection of a conversation between Andrew Fuller and William Carey, both of whom were Baptist giants a few centuries ago, and the latter of whom, as you may know, was the great pioneer missionary to India. I don't have that little card in front of me, but let me recall the conversation for you. As William Carey and Andrew Fuller and others were contemplating the missionary calling and specifically the need in the nation of India, Fuller said this, there is a gold mine in India, but it seems as deep as the center of the earth. Who will venture to explore it? To which Carey replied, I will go down. But remember that you must hold the rope. You must hold the rope. And then writing about these events, Fuller would say, before he went down, we engaged that while he lived, we should never let go the rope. 
Now those words and those vows were made between brother pastors gathered in a missionary society, not in the context of a single local church, but oh how apropos they are for the local church. They are apropos for us as we hold the rope for the missionary families that we support. And they are especially apropos if God should ever choose to send out some from our own number. While they live, we must never let go the rope. We must never stop praying. We must never stop supporting. We must never stop calling. We must never stop writing. We must never stop encouraging. Missions is local church-based. And then fourthly, very briefly, notice that missions in this passage means teamwork. Missions means teamwork. And I think it probably should mean teamwork in most cases today. Just observe quickly that the church in Antioch did not send either Barnabas or Saul out to the mission work alone. No, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Barnabas and Saul. So the Holy Spirit calls and the church at Antioch sends two missionaries together to work as a team. And these two, according to verse 5, also had John as their helper. And there are all sorts of reasons why, in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, it must have seemed good to send two or three men together instead of just one by himself. Accountability, encouragement, companionship, physical care if one should fall ill. Not to mention the fact that more preaching and discipling and praying and so on can be done by a team than by one man alone. So, for instance, William Carey, brave as he was to go down the mine shaft to India, did not go down alone. He went with a partner, a medical missionary called John Thomas, and more teammates would follow in the ensuing years. And we see the same idea here in Acts 13. God sending his missionaries out as a team. And we should just file that away for the time when God should start to raise up one of our own. We should have it already in our mind that it is probably not good for him or her to go alone. And we should be prepared to fast and to pray that God would provide a teammate. Missions means teamwork. And something else we should file away is that missions means opposition. Missions means opposition. We've been hovering so far mostly in the warm spiritual climate of the flourishing church at Antioch, from whence Barnabas and Saul's great missionary enterprise was given birth. But there does come a time for the missionaries to leave the womb, right? And when they do, the spiritual climate outside the womb of their local church is often not nearly so hospitable as it was at home. Sometimes they will face the coldness of human hearts and the work will be very slow. Sometimes they will face the fires of persecution. And sometimes they will just face the hassle of men and women who do not believe the truth and who seem literally hell-bent on making sure no one else believes it either. And the latter is what we find here in verses 6 through 8, isn't it? As the missionary team makes its way to the island of Cyprus and to the town of Paphos, they face opposition. Read those verses 6 through 8 again with me. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician 
a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, but Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Opposition. Now, it seems to me that this Bar-Jesus in verse 6 and this Elymas in verse 8 are one and the same person. Perhaps Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Joshua, was in essence his family name. He was born to a man called Joshua. And Elymas may have either been his given name or perhaps a nickname, since Elymas apparently means magician, according to verse 8. So this Elymas and Bar-Jesus are probably two names for the same fellow. But the key thing about him is not so much his name as his activity in this passage against the gospel. According to verses 6 and 7, he seems already to have been attached somehow to this government official called Sergius Paulus. We don't know how. Maybe they were friends or maybe Sergius Paulus had been consulting him as a kind of spiritual counselor because he was a magician and and deemed himself a prophet. But whatever their relationship was, this Elymas Bar-Jesus becomes very agitated when he realizes that Sergius Paulus is now interested in a very different kind of spiritual counsel than that which Elymas would give him. And he sets his face against the missionaries and makes what appear to have been considerable efforts to oppose Barnabas and Saul and to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And this is the kind of thing that happens on the mission field, isn't it? Satan does not allow men and women out of his clutches without a fight. And here he is using Elymas as his henchman to run interference and to try to prevent the flow of the gospel into the life of Sergius Paulus. And this sort of difficulty is, in many cases, just part and parcel of missionary work. Opposition from witch doctors or priests or gurus or all sorts of other folks as well, seeking to turn people away from the faith can be normal things on the mission field. Very often, it may even be family members who make threats or who use coercion or bribery or who just place a child or a wife on lockdown so that they can't have access to the gospel. Sometimes the government may be the one running interference as well, opposing men like Barnabas and Saul. And all of that may seem to us, in some ways, a strange thing, this opposition to the gospel, because the gospel is the greatest news in the world, isn't it? The God of the universe, against whom we have turned our backs and thumbed our noses and broken his laws, that God has come down to earth and loved us enough that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? That's amazing news, isn't it? That Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me? How could anyone oppose a Savior like that? But Acts 13 reminds us that they do. And of course, we don't even have to go to the mission field to see this, do we? Some of you have perhaps experienced it in your own family or among your own friends. As you were coming to Christ or as you've sought to lead others to him. You've seen how people can be so desperate to make sure that you or someone else does not turn to Jesus. 
They may make fun of your interest in Jesus. They may belittle you for it. They may argue that it's all just fanaticism or that it's unscientific or that it's narrow-minded or any number of things. And if we're going to believe the gospel, and especially if we're going to share the gospel, we have to be prepared for such potential opposition. And not least of all, on the mission field. And so this is more reason for us to pray, I think, for our missionaries, that they will not be thrown off course by such things, that the Holy Spirit would work in spite of the opposition, and that the missionaries would know how to respond to situations like this one with Elymas and Sergius Paulus in Acts 13. And on that front of how the missionaries respond to opposition, just notice briefly the boldness with which Saul responds to this man in verses 9 through 11. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Isn't that amazing? Now I don't know that that would always be exactly the response that we would want to make to those who oppose the gospel, but it certainly does model for us a boldness that we ought to have. And that I think we should pray that not only we, but our missionaries would have. Yes, we speak the truth in love, but we also have boldness when we deal with the devil's henchmen. And more than that, we should pray that we and our missionaries, like Paul in verse 9, would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why he was bold. That's what will make us bold or help us to love or to conciliate, or whatever the response may need to be. That's what we must be if we are to deal with opposition as God would have us deal with it. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, it is He who not only gives birth to missionary endeavors, but who carries them on and sustains them as well. So then, missions is born of the Holy Spirit. Missions is born in prayer and fasting. Missions is based in the local church. Missions means teamwork. Missions means opposition. And finally, let me say to you from this passage that missions, the cause of getting the gospel out to the ends of the earth, will succeed. Missions will succeed. Barnabas and Saul and John, Mark, did not travel all those miles in vain. They did not preach in vain. They did not stand up to opposition in vain. The church family back in Antioch did not pray and fast in vain because the Holy Spirit was at work, not only to set these men apart and to send them on their way, but he was at work, as this passage makes evident, also in the hearts of those to whom they were sent. And Luke gives us one example of that working of the Holy Spirit in the conversion of this man, Sergius Paulus. This man, verse 7, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Evidently, he had heard them preaching already, or at least heard about their preaching, and the Spirit began opening his heart so that he wanted to know more. And when he began to hear more, and when he had witnessed the whole ordeal with Elymas and God's power displayed in his blinding, 
The proconsul, verse 12, believed. The proconsul believed, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Isn't that heartening? Because there was this opposition. There was this attempt to frustrate God, what God was doing. And so much here could have gone astray. So much could have gone awry in a situation like this with Elymas and all of his words against Barnabas and Saul. And yet, the teaching of the Lord prevailed. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus demonstrated their power once again. And the proconsul believed. Now, I know that sometimes when you are sharing Christ or hoping to share Christ with your coworker or your neighbor or your family member, sometimes it just seems like nothing is happening at all. It seems like they will never become a believer. And you may almost feel sometimes like you're wasting your breath. But in spite of what we may sometimes feel, in spite of the smallness of our faith, in spite of all the things on the outside that seem to be against this person ever coming to Christ, The gospel is, in the midst of all those things, the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. Isn't that right? The gospel does work. Because look at this proconsul, Sergius Paulus. He's elevated in society. He's apparently educated as well, for he's described in verse 7 as a man of intelligence. He seems at least to have been influenced by false religion, if not involved in it himself. And so he doesn't seem to me, anyway, like the kind of person that I would normally expect to respond favorably favorably to gospel preaching. He doesn't seem like the kind of person that you would think would pick up his phone and call the preachers and say, could you come over and visit me at my house and tell me more about this Jesus? And yet, this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. This man. And eventually the proconsul believed. And if you and I and our missionaries will just continue sowing the gospel seed, he won't be the only one. Because it is not a person's predisposition toward the gospel that is the power of God for salvation. No. This same Paul would later write that it is the gospel itself that is the power of God for salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. And when we have a power like that at our disposal in this book, and when we unleash it by the preaching and sharing of the word, of course people like Sergius Paulus will come to Christ. Of course the missionary cause will succeed. It can't help but do so, so long as this powerful gospel is proclaimed. And the rest of the New Testament reminds us that the gospel cause will succeed not just in ones and twos, but through those ones and twos, the gospel will continue to spread until there is, Revelation 7, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Because... As is sung to Jesus in Revelation 5, you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And I tell you that if Jesus purchased them with his blood, then men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will come into his kingdom. 
They will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, like Sergius Paulus, seek to hear the word of God once they have been given a taste for it. And they will, like the proconsul, believe, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Sometimes they may come in just one at a time, as we read here in Acts 13, but they will come. In the words of Stuart Townend and Keith Getty in the hymn that we sometimes sing, O Church Arise, Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. This is the great hope of missions. This is why we can send out some of our best and brightest with confidence, even to the remotest part of the earth, because we believe that it is not just we who send them, but the Holy Spirit. And because we believe that the Lord will hear and honor our prayers and our fasting. And because we know that in spite of opposition, the cause of missions will succeed. For the Lamb of God was slain and purchased for God with his blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And those men and women and girls and boys who have been purchased at such a price will Therefore, join Sergius Paulus at Jesus' feet. And it will be said of them as it was of him that they sought to hear the word of God and that they were amazed at the teaching of the Lord and that, praise God, they believed.